Good morning, friends. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So glad you're here. Uh, the topic of this particular session is understanding worldview. So if that's not where you intended to be, uh, right now is a good time to leave. But um, glad you're here. I've connected with just a few of you already and know that many of you understand worldview better than I do and could, um, could very easily be leading this session. Join me in prayer, please. Gracious God, you are Lord of life. Everything that has been created has been created by, with, by your word. Without you, nothing has been made. Thank you for creating our amazing minds and hearts and spirits. We ask you to guide us through these few minutes together to better understand this whole notion of worldview. And through that, to more faithfully honor your mission in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I've talked to a couple of you just just to find out that um, uh, some of you are first timers. Some have been here before. How many of you are first timers at GMHC? Wow, great! Every year we find that to be the case. So many of you. How many of you have been here more than three times? Okay, several several have. Well, hopefully this is going to be just an amazingly rich experience from start to finish for you. The plenary sessions, so many amazing breakouts and exhibitors who have amazing experience in God's service through the years. And um, together, this is, this is just a great opportunity for learning. Um, my name's Michael Smith, also known as Mick Smith. Um, and I've spent most of, my, most of my ministry internationally. After seminary, I thought I was going to be a, a pastor in a U.S. church for all my career. And I was successfully for about 18 months before I was recruited into missionary service and spent 23 years with Indianapolis-based CMF International. That took me to Ethiopia for three and a half years, just in time to be kicked out by the Marxist revolution that overthrew Haile Selassie. And then spent seven years in central Java, Indonesia. And then um, uh, the last 10 years as the executive director of CMF. And after that, spent eight years with MAP International, medical assistance programs, that has some wonderful programs in long-term community-based health development in 10 or 12 countries around the world. So I have been muddling in this whole arena of worldview for a bunch of years and am delighted to be in conversation with you today about this. Now, by the way, if some of you who came in late did not get a handout, would you raise your hands uh, because we're going to use it together in a few minutes and we have an assistant over here who will help you. If you did not, okay, we've got a couple over on this side. Who did? We are out of them over here. You're out over here. The guy at the door. There's some on this side. Okay. 
And if not, you might need to exercise a little Christian charity and share. Okay? So... Okay, we do have an extra one over here. And I am wired so I cannot move. So do you all mind helping to <clears throat> like pull the whole house down? Okay. So, an overview. The reality is that wherever you go, as they say, there you are. And you take your worldview with you. And you're going to experience the reality that not all worldviews are the same. Meaningful change, all of us who have served internationally know, meaningful change requires rearranging worldview. And most of the time, it begins with the worldview of the missionary. After all my years of working internationally, I'm, I'm convinced, and I'm sorry to say, that probably the most profound change that has occurred through my ministries is in me. And I think that's okay. I think that's a part of the journey. All right, so what is a world? Worldview. Now, this, is, this slide is especially designed to satisfy the CEU requirements of something sounding sort of sophisticated, so I'm quoting from some experts. A worldview is a few basic assumptions about the nature of reality that shape our thinking. Worldview is the basic way of interpreting things and events that shapes our whole concept of reality. What is good, what is important, what is sacred, what is real. Let me give you a, a whimsical but I think helpful example from, from Maasai land. One of my missionary friends who's worked with the Maasai shared this a number of years ago. Okay, take a look at this list of things. What categories would you use to organize this list of things? Animals, Animals okay. What else? Spiritual. Spiritual. Created, things. Created things, is that what you said? Okay. What else? I'm sorry, living things? Okay, well, the Maasai would view it a little bit differently, according to my friend. A man, whale, and lion are things that rule over by virtue of size, ferocity, whatever. Um, woman and a cow, you're not going to like this, are things that produce. In the Maasai setting, a cow can produce the bride price or something. Let's just leave that one. Um, deer, a dog, deer, and bush are things that nobody owns, but everybody can use. Germs, virus, demon, God, and angel are things you can't see that can kill you. So, again, it gives you the recognition that not everybody sees the world exactly the same. So, I think we have to ask the question, though, who has a worldview? Is it, is it cultures or nations or ethnic groups or is it individuals? And I think the answer is probably yes. Because there, there's significant overlap, certainly within an, within a, an ethnic group. 
there are fundamental pieces of a worldview that are shared by many of the people. But for the purposes of today, to try to get our hands on this idea of, of understanding worldview, I want to pull it down to the individual level, and you'll begin to see some of the interface. So where does our worldview come from? Are we born with it, or do we learn it? What's your sense? Yeah, I think we learn it. I think what we're born with is an amazing God-given capacity to absorb so much input that it crafts a bit of a worldview for us. One way that I think is helpful is to think of worldview as the lenses that are ground by the world, by our experience in the world we live in. And those lenses then become prescriptive in that they shape what we see and how we see it. So, forces shaping a worldview include two broad general categories. There are a lot of things that come from our culture generally. There are assumptions about what is real, what is valuable, how people relate, connect. There are assumptions that are broadly shared within our culture. Our experience as individuals, though, within specific families and neighborhoods and broader communities and nations, that experience helps to form our worldview as well. Sometimes it's a matter of just fine-tuning what our culture has brought in. Other times it's really introducing pretty significant new segments. Let me give you a a couple of examples. Many times our worldview has a fundamental sense that domination is a part of the worldview. Uh, Theologian Walter Wink has a great book on um, engaging the powers in which he says one of the most profound expressions of brokenness and sin in the world is what he calls the domination system. And he articulates that as the belief that in life some are destined to rule over and some are therefore destined to be ruled over. So if you have that kind of a piece of your worldview, racism is not an unexpected thing. And one of the, one of the strong, undeniable re- pieces of the reality of worldview is that it is often hidden. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. My daddy was from southern Mississippi. My mother was from southern Alabama. Racism was a part of the air that I breathed. It was not a mean-spirited, aggressive racism. It was just a fundamental assumption that white people are superior to black people and we all have our place. And I... With, with real pain, confess that it took me a long time to see that. It wasn't until a friend came home with me in college and was upset about a sign about a white drinking fountain and a colored drinking fountain. And my initial thought was, what's wrong? 
so blind, so blind. So I have been a very, very slow learner on that. Another example of a really fundamental worldview tenet is whether the world is one of abundance or scarcity. Do I, through my culture's input, through my personal experience, see the world as a place where God clothes the lilies of the fields and feeds the birds of the air. And my experience is that life supports me versus those whose experience has been radically different. And they see that the world does not have enough. And that they are destined to poverty, to destitution destitution and struggle. Whole notions of agency or passivity. Do I, as a human being, am I gifted with, is the reality of life that I can be an agent in learning, growing, transforming? Or is it the reality that everything, I am a victim of things? During the years I lived in Indonesia, one of the struggles that I had was dealing with the worldview of Passivity or fatalism. Someone steps out in front of a bus, slammed. The response is, That's, That was their fate. That was their fate. But our worldview is so deep, is so deeply buried, that it is implicit. It is assumed. This is just how things are. And because it is so often hidden, it has all the more power. When I was probably 10 years old, I remember riding the bus downtown Atlanta with my mom. And one of the places I got her to stop was a magic shop. And I bought a little plastic toy. As I recall, it was like, shaped like a coffin. A little plastic toy. And it had something sitting inside of it. The other, the thing that was inside it was a magnet. And I could, I was so brilliant, I could take that thing and I could put this little plastic thing, which had some metal embedded in it, on top of the table and I could impress my friends by putting the magnet up under the table and I could slide the magnet around and this little plastic thing would move around on the table. It was magic. Well, our worldview has that kind of power to shape our, our lives, our thinking, what we do. So, worldview in this triangle illustration is foundational, which then informs our values, which then shape our words and actions. I think Jesus had something to say about we speak from that which fills our hearts a good tree is not going to give bad fruit. A bad tree is not going to give good fruit. I think there's a connection there. So, hope you're seeing this concept that our worldview is the bedrock of our living. It's not just dealing with the superficial sort of electives that are on the top, but with our more foundational sense of what is real. It really is what I think of as belief at the deepest level. 
Now, in a lot of our circles, belief means the doctrines that we adhere to, the things that we, we profess to believe. But what I'm talking about is the stuff we stake our life on. Because I think most of us would agree that we do live out of what we believe to be real. And I illustrate that with riding an airplane. I still do not understand aerodynamics. I'm, there are times when I'm sitting on a plane, I think, is this thing really going to get off the ground? But I have, through experience, learned that aero, air flight is possible. And I get on the plane. I stake my life on that belief. So our worldview is the locus of our deepest and most important living It is also the locus of our deepest and most important healing and our lifetime of being converted. So how do I discover my own worldview? If it's it's that deep and hidden, um, one of the best things is just to pay attention to what I do and then deduce, kind of walk backward from what I do And I can uncover things that I believe. Some of you have probably played cross-cultural simulation games. One of my favorites through the years is Bafa Bafa. And by the way, I was going to say to you, I'll I'll have my email address at the end. If any of you are interested in slides rather than going frantically on note-taking, I'll be glad to send it. Um, There are also some structured assessments. I found just one with a quick Google search, and you can find others. Worldview assessments. Um, being a part of a committed community of people who understand worldview, who are partners with you in the journey, who can share with you in that mutual discovery and recognition. And I believe that God's spirit works through that to help us recognize our blindness, to recognize pieces of our worldview that need attention. Okay. The handout that I gave you is because we're going to take a few minutes to dig into a worldview collision in the life of the early church, which, in my opinion, is one of the most important developments in Christian history after the resurrection of Christ. Because without this... Most of us would not be here. Are, are any of you Jewish in your faith practice today? Okay, you would not be here. So what I want to ask you to do, um, if you came in late and did not get one of the handouts, I want to invite you to connect with somebody who did. And uh, we're going to take several minutes for this, even though it's a fairly long passage, so many important dimensions of worldview. I want to invite you to read through that and then pair up with somebody. If if you're sitting next to someone you did not come with, pair up with them. But pair up with them and then fairly quickly move through the questions. I know we could spend all the rest of the day, not just this breakout, but the day on this. So just move quickly through that and then we're going to come back together. I'll call you back together in 10 minutes.
Let's um, let's come back together now. All righty. Had had most of you seen recognized earlier that this was a, a worldview conflict, worldview collision. Became really important for me along the way. So, who was the missionary in this narrative? Peter was a missionary in this narrative. Other thoughts? Yes, the men who were called to go get Peter. They were sent. I heard another comment over here that was also helpful. Didn't I hear you say something? I was listening to you. I was I was eavesdropping. I said that I thought Cornelius as well because he was a God-fearing man. Yes, and I think I also heard you say the Holy Spirit was the missionary here. Yes. Yes. So yes. Um, what what are what are the cross-cultural dimensions? I think that's fairly clear and obvious. What are the cross-cultural dimensions? Jewish traditions versus Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. Right. Very clearly defined traditions, boundaries there. Where does worldview figure into the story? Yes, you may answer. Yes. Yes, you. Yes. <laughs> she wasn't raising her hand either, so... <laughs> Yes. Peter's confronted with his worldview that he previously had just been an assumption of the way Jews live. You know? Right. Um, so, so what was the essence of the of the worldview issue that was in was surfaced here from um, Peter? We talk about even unclean versus clean. Um, you know, because it's not even just about Gentiles and Jews. Yes. So, yeah. I, I think that's very helpful to note that it was even at a deeper layer layer than. Jews, Gentiles was, there are some in life who are clean, there are some who are not clean. Yes? Well, that was, that was typified by the words of the people. You are well aware that it's against our law for you to associate with Gentile or visit him. Or, kind of like the, yes, the yes, yes, good. <laughs> Other thoughts on the worldview dimensions? Yes? I think the very fact that the Jews thought that the message of God was available and intended for them and not for the people. The Jews thought the message of God was available for them and not intended for others. Other other thoughts on that? Yes. I think it's relevant too to see that Peter's intent and his point in doing this is to try to please and honor God. Yes. And I think that's an important place to to know that. In order to try to understand this, we talk in pretty definitive terms about components of our worldview. None of us are that clearly and exclusively defined in our worldview. There's, there's a mixture. Yes? We're also wondering what was the worldview of Cornelius. Uh, this is a centurion and Peter is to him a nobody. And why should I have this person come to my court? So what about Centurion might have led him to think this guy's a nobody? The Centurion, he basically was a person who 
had his armies look over where Peter lived in. He was a Roman, he was a commander of a Roman legion that was occupying Palestine. So, yes, good, very helpful point. Thank you. Okay, so, um, so whose worldview was challenged? Well, we've already answered that, I think. So, what, what happened, though, recap briefly, what happened to bring this worldview conflict to the surface? Yes. Well, they each had their own cultural perspective of life. Mm-hmm. And living their individual lives, walking their individual paths, the angel of the Lord came and visited with each of them separately, a separate incident that spoke the same thing to both of them and led them together, directed them together, so they were immediately taken out of their own cultural yes. um, understanding. Yes. As they were walking on the way according to the dictates of their worldviews, an angel of the Lord interrupted and brought them together, which is how God works. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty big deal because other than, and I don't know if it's before or after, but the Ethiopian eunuch, this was basically the first time that they were given the idea that, hey, it might be okay for Gentiles to accept Christ too. Yes. Isn't it? I mean, that's yes. I mean, this this is this is the this is this is the watershed experience in that fullest sense. Yes. So it is big. So what was the outcome of the conflict? Somebody summarize it. Peter's ministry got changed. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes. And did, did this did this event change God's mind? Okay. All right. All right. Um, somebody else had a hand up. Yes. 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 Right. Yes. Am I willing to risk breaking my law, so to speak, to embrace and follow God's law? Huge, hugely important. So, in a sense, I think you could summarize that a part of the outcome of this conflict was Peter's conclusion that I can see now that God does not show favoritism. That was a really important worldview change. There is an even, even deeper level worldview change, I believe, that has really scary implications for me. And I'm going to share an example in a few minutes. And that is, Peter came to realize my experience of God is not God. 
my understanding of God is not God. Only God is God. And I am called to follow the God of creation whose world, whose will is so beyond my ability to grasp. And so I follow humbly. So what, what, is, what is there in this narrative, we've already touched on it, that suggests that this was an important and a not very easy worldview issue to bring into collision? What was it that shows that this is so important and so difficult? It required the Holy Spirit's prompting on both sides. Yes, if you look through this, there are at least four divine interventions to get this to happen. Which says, as you were saying a minute ago, this is big. This is really big. All right, so what lessons can we draw from this worldview collision in Scripture to help us manage worldview and worldview conflicts in our own lives and ministries? Just popcorn, what are some of them that came up for you? God loves all people. God loves all people. No exceptions. Humility concerning our own worldview. Humility, yes, concerning our worldview. We may need to shed our religious traditions. We may need, ooh, to shed our religious traditions. Or at least acknowledge that we don't have the gift of immaculate perception. <laughs> Other other thoughts. God brings us into contact with other worldviews intentionally. Yes, God brings us into contact with other worldviews intentionally. Others. Importance of prayer. Why? Cornelius was praying. Um, Peter was praying. We, we, praying. We, we need to be sensitive. Yes. <laughs> Peter was quiet on the rooftop, resting. Many of us stay so busy that God cannot get a word in edgewise. The importance of prayer and quiet. What are the thoughts? To that point, it's important to continue to grow in our knowledge of God. Continue to grow in our knowledge of God. Where we see our identities should and can change. Yes. Absolutely. Our identities are not set in stone. They can grow. We can change. And love wins. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes, and I think you had one more thought. Yes. Absolutely. It is unbelievably huge. And this was not just a personal idea. It was rooted deeply in his faith, his sense of who God is and who God accepts and doesn't accept. And it was huge, huge, huge. All right, we need to move on. Um, Jesus does worldview as well. We don't have time to get into these, but let me just throw a quick few examples 
Blind Bartimaeus along the road, hollering out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. People tried to shut him up. And when Jesus came to him, of all the stupid things to do, Jesus should have just walked up, touched his eyes, made him see. But what does Jesus do? He says, what do you want me to do for you? You can see I'm blind. What do you mean? No, Jesus did not presume to know the worldview of what was most important to Bartimaeus. Zacchaeus, wealthy chief tax collector, after Jesus visited his home, he volunteered. I don't see any indication in Scripture that Jesus pressured Zacchaeus to this conclusion. But after experiencing the world of Jesus, the person, the presence of Jesus, he said, I'll give half my possessions to the poor and I'm going to repay four times anybody that I cheated. I don't think Jesus prescribed the response that was most fundamentally healing and restoring and converting in the worldview of Zacchaeus. Teachers, Pharisee, a crowd, the teachers, Pharisees were teaching and somebody brought in a woman who had been caught in adultery and they were going to stone her. Jesus, our law says she should be stoned. What do you say? A worldview there of sin and judgment. The law of sin and judgment. And Jesus turns that on its head with a worldview that says, go ahead, whoever of you is without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. Neither do I condemn you. Worldviews turned upside down on multiple sides there. I want to share personally in sort of a confessional mode a journey that's been a part of mine. Um, my current ministry with Bread for the World required a significant change of worldview. It was not instantaneous. It wasn't contained in a two-day narrative. Um, it was a, a rebirth in my worldview that whose, whose gestation and labor period spanned about 15 or more years. <laughs> and it still is in, uh, in process to some extent. Bread for the World, listen to this for a tagline, is a collective Christian voice building public and political will to end hunger. Twenty years ago, I would have said end hunger and end physical hunger influence political decisions. My response would have been like Peter and say, surely not, Lord. That's a morally good thing to pursue, but it's not the work of the gospel. But then, to use Peter's experience analogy, I fell into a trance on the rooftop. And as I mentioned, my trance lasted um, a decade or two. My worldview said that's not gospel work because there were three key tenets of my worldview, foundation stones. Um, my sense of what is real and these crafted the lens through which I read scripture and life. First was individualistic, that the gospel is most concerned with me and other individuals being saved. 
and that the salvation I was talking about was from a fragmented view of creation and salvation. And old Greek dualism was alive and well, and the spirit is good, and anything material and matter is bad. And so the focus of ministry from my worldview 20 years ago was that our job is to help others receive in Christ the forgiveness that cleanses sins so that we are acceptable to God and have hope of eternal life for our souls. That is, that we are saved. And there was a piece of domination in there as it connected with my worldview of the poor. Those folks are, I would never have said this, but remember this is, this is buried deep that influences values and words and deeds. If I had been able to see it, I would have said my worldview says these people are destined to be poor or maybe even they deserve it. Bad attitudes, bad character, bad culture. And maybe they're even content with the way things are in their world. The, the sheet that was let down for me was a couple of stories, a couple of pivotal stories. I was in a restaurant in Jacksonville, Florida, <clears throat> went into the restroom and somebody had left a, a tract in there that said, do you know where you'll spend eternity? Well, the, the, that would, have, would not have connected much with me except on the sidewalk on the way into the restaurant, I had seen several people who I am sure did not know where they were going to spend the night. And I realized that my Christian culture was asking me, which is more important? And that stirred me deeply. Another was a story from my missionary days a few years back. Um, a district health commissioner in Kenya was approached by a, a medical mission group about approval for a new health clinic. And the health commissioner asked the question, how will your work be different than the missionaries before you? They built clinics which are now in disrepair. They converted my people, but my people still live in poverty and disease. And that spoke to me. And because of those pivotal stories, I began to see Jesus again for the first time. With the help of some mentors, some books I was reading, the stirring of God's Spirit, I looked back and, and said, what is Jesus' mission from His own words, in His own words, from His inaugural sermon at His hometown in Nazareth? He went to Nazareth where He'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, He went into the synagogue, as was His custom, and He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Him. Unrolling it, He found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on Him, and He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. My old worldview screamed out, but didn't he mean spiritually blind and poor people? 
But then I read further and I saw that when John the Baptist was in jail and he sent his disciples to Jesus to say, Jesus, are you the one or do we need to look for somebody else? Jesus' answer did not say, John, look at how many thousands of people are following me. How many have just come to me and said they believe in me? Um, But he said, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news brought to them. And you remember the Scriptures that shaped Jesus like you were saying a few minutes ago. The Scriptures that had shaped Peter. The Scriptures that had shaped Jesus were the laws and the prophets. He didn't have the New Testament, folks. (laughs) And so Jesus' ministry was marinated in the spirit of Isaiah 58. Is this not the kind of fasting that I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and tie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then will your light break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And then to cap it all, Jesus taught his disciples to pray a prayer and the centerpiece of that prayer is thy kingdom come, which means thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And look at the Beatitudes. He messed up the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for dikaiosune, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of dikaiosune, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You Greek scholars know, and all of you who've read Scripture all your life know that we normally translate that dikaiosune as righteousness. Hunger and thirst for my righteousness. Persecuted for my righteousness. Isn't it more likely that I'm going to be persecuted for pursuing justice? Which is the other completely legitimate translation of dikaiosune. The individualistic lens of my interpretation and convention in our society is that it's about my righteousness. Might it be that Jesus was talking about persecuted for pursuing justice? And so for me now, my, eventually I came to, to my, as Peter said, I now realize that ending the injustice that leaves 29,000 children dying before their fifth birthday every day is neither the fruit of the gospel nor a means to preaching the gospel. It is the work of the gospel. Now, I need to do a little disclaimer here because some of you may be, your, your worldviews may be freaking out and saying, oh my gosh, this guy doesn't believe in salvation, doesn't believe, I may as well just have a secular program trying to do, nope, not at all. Bread for the World, the organization I work with, says again and again and again and again that our current push to help end extreme and chronic hunger in the world by the year 2030 
must be a movement of God's love. If it is not, we've got nothing to give and it will go nowhere. And so, at my booth, I've got a gazillion of these little flyers that are daily prayers for the end of hunger. We're recruiting 100,000 people to pray every day that God's Spirit will mobilize the resources and the will to end hunger that is needless in God's world. So my worldview was born again. On August, in August of 2010, when the invitation came to work for Bread for the World, with Bread for the World, in the words of Peter, so when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. So my prayer for you, may you have the courage like Peter to listen and follow God's call, especially when it challenges your worldview. And here's a suggested conditioning exercise for ministry practice. Regularly, prayerfully, reread the Gospels especially. All of Scripture, but especially the Gospels. What does Jesus say is the good news? What does Jesus say about his purpose? What does Jesus do in his ministry? What does he teach his followers to do? And as you read, check your lenses. Thank you. God bless.